0: Ever, a community or a city is confronted with the gospel, on the one hand many in that community will experience renewal, will experience new life, will experience salvation in Christ as they repent and believe the gospel. On the other hand, many may resist to repent and believe the gospel. They may continue in rebellions like we're all in apart from Christ. And is what, you'll, is what you'll notice is anytime kind of the gospel comes into an area, whether it's on the mission field or whether it's uh, in a community that's already really heard the gospel, but maybe there's kind of a spiritual awakening happening, there will always be people uh, that repent and believe the gospel, and there will always be people that resist whatever's God doing at that time. And in the same way, um, that happens, within, in our, it happens in groups like that because it happens in our own hearts. Whenever we are hearing gospel truth and we have the opportunity to apply it, we either repent and believe, or we resist, even as a believer. Right? As we grow and mature in Christ, we either repent of our sin and continue to trust Christ in deeper and more meaningful ways, or we resist and we hold on to things and erect idols in our heart and, and rebel against God. Today we're going to see the gospel comes to a city called Ephesus. all right? We've got a, it's, the church at Ephesus we know more about than really in a lot of churches in the New Testament because we've got their... Their early beginnings in Acts. We've got a letter written to them in Ephesians. We've got Timothy stationed there getting letters in First and 2 Timothy. And we've got a letter delivered by John, given to John from the mouth of Jesus uh, in Revelation chapter 2. So we've we got a lot of content really about Ephesus. So it's a very important church. And this is kind of their early founding days that we're going to see here in Ephesians 19. Uh, the gospel has already come to Ephesus where we're about to pick up. Uh, we know Apollos preached there and preached the gospel there. And as Paul gets to Ephesus, he's going to camp out there for about three years. So he stays there for a while doing ministry. And what we we'll see here in the two accounts we're going to look at in Ephesus is that there are two pictures of responses uh, as to the gospel as it has advanced in that city over those three years. As people are coming to know Jesus, as disciples are being made, as churches are being planted around the region, uh, we, we see people repenting and we see people resisting. And as people and as a church who are seeking to live on mission in a gospel-advancing uh, church, trying to advance the gospel, trying to make disciples, there's things, some things we can learn, I believe, as we look at these two pictures about it, keys to advancing the gospel in our community, really in our own lives. So look with me in Acts chapter 19. We're going to start that in verse 8. So we were in chapter 17 this week. We're kind of moving ahead here, a little further ahead in Paul's journey. Well, he was in Corinth, and now he's moved on to Ephesus. So we're in Acts chapter 19, verse 8 says, And he, that's the Apostle Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's a phrase they use to describe the church in Acts a few times, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, the Apostle Paul, withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is a significant verse there um, in verse 10. Now, let's pause for a second. So the city of Ephesus was not the capital of that area, but it was the most important city in the region. And as a large city, it was, of course, a very, it was full of commercial enterprises and lots of promise. Um, it was a very religious city. We're going to see that it was famous for its devotion to the idol um, Artemis, or also known as Diana. And in fact, the most famous structure in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So, a very significant piece of architecture there. Now, this was a strategic city also. For advancing the cause of the gospel for planting churches because of its geographic location and being a port city and things like that. And so as you see there in verse 10, the gospel begins to go out over the whole region from there. And that means that every man, woman, and child heard the gospel and was given a chance to repent and believe the gospel during that short amount of time. That's incredible to think about. Now, does that mean while Paul was there in that hall preaching, and he was preached there every day, right? And as he's there holding kind of his big Bible studies, and he's there preaching every day, does that mean everybody in all of that uh, Asian province came through there? I don't know, maybe. I think more likely it means lots of people came through there, and many believed and left there talking about it, taking the gospel back to wherever they came from. So at some point, the gospel had spread completely throughout the entire region. So we pick up verse 11. Verse 14 says, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's just a crazy story. There were Jewish exorcists, basically, who did not know Christ, were not believers in Christ, had but they tried to use the name of Christ to cast out demons like they had seen in her uh, Paul doing. Uh, F.F. Bruce notes in this passage, I'm just going to read to you, he says the Jews were respected in that day by many who practiced magic. Here's why. For they were believed to have exceptionally effective spells at their command. In particular, the fact that the name of God of Israel was not to be pronounced by vulgar lips was generally known among the pagans and misinterpreted by them according to regular magic principles. So they looked at some of those things that the Jews did like they, you know, the name of God not supposed to be spoken in vain or spoken on vulgar lips, and they saw that as they kind of related that to their their magic spells. That there must be kind of some magic in that name, and so they held uh, uh, many Jews in high regard on that day. And you see here in particular, there's this group of guys called the Seven Sons of Sceva, who, while it says he was a high priest, uh, commentators note that he may have just been a self-designated title he had given himself. That with Luke would have had quotation marks, maybe that's what he would have used, or he might have been a part of a high priest family. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how to apply that, but the takeaway is this: what we see here is people kind of playing with spiritual things, things that aren't meant to be played with. And if you don't submit to the name of Christ, you certainly shouldn't try to operate in the authority of Christ. And the scene is is really one of the more comedic scenes in Acts, because. These guys, man, they're big and tough, and they're going to go in and they're going to kind of show off by taking the name of Jesus and say the name that Paul preaches. I don't, I, I, I don't, I'm not associated with this name they're saying. I don't have personal faith in Christ, but I've seen, I've heard about Paul doing this. So in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, right? And they get beat up so bad by this guy that they leave, leave naked. And that's how you know you've lost the fight. Uh, there, there's no, you should see the other guy when you leave naked. Um, you have lost. Um, verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, that means magnified, glorified. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the word of what happened began to spread throughout Ephesus. And people understood that the name of Jesus was not something to be trifled with, is what's happening here. And they began to extol and glorify and magnify his name. And it says those now that were believers came, and it says they confessed and divulged. They were repenting, in other words. They were forsaking. They were getting away from this practice of magic arts, even burning the books, that we'll get to a little bit later. A lot of value involved in those books. Um, he says 50,000 pieces of silver. And so no matter the cost, they wanted this out of their lives. And so we get this picture of this kind of spiritual awakening happening, and this picture of deep repentance taking place within the community of faith and among the people of Ephesus. But then, at another point, we get a picture, here are starting in verse 21, of a people resistant to the gospel. And this happens, we we don't know how much further later, but we do know it happens towards the end of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, Nicaea, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So this is towards the end of Paul's ministry. He's making plans to leave Ephesus. And Demetrius, the silversmith, realizes that if people continue to repent and believe the gospel in this city, turning to Jesus from idols, that he's going to be out of job. Because part of his job was making little idols, right? And so this is starting to affect his pocketbook. And so he gets kind of the union guys together and he says, this is kind of going to affect all of us. This is bad for the economy of our city. Now Artemis, I'm going to read to you here a quote uh, from a commentator because it explains so well uh, the kind of the the importance and kind of the centrality of Artemis in their day and how important this idol worship was in their city. John Polhill writes, The Temple of Artemis was indeed a hub of Ephesian economic life. It was an impressive building, some 165 feet by 345 feet in dimension and built on a platform 240 by 420 feet. The entire edifice was elaborately adorned in brilliant colors and gold leaf. The altar area was 20 feet square and contained a massive image of the goddess with a veiled head with animals and birds decorating her head and lower body, and numerous breasts from her waist to her neck. The animals and breasts were symbolic of her status as the ancient Asian mother goddess, the goddess of nature who was believed to protect and preserve the vicinity of all living things." So, you've got this seventh wonder of the world at that time in the center of your city here. Uh, the worship of it helps help fund the economy in that day. I mean it's this overwhelming, just massive piece of architecture there in the city. And Demetrius is making the argument that, hey, if we if they people keep trusting Jesus and believe that he's the only true God, and they stop believing that Artemis is a real God. This is going to hurt our city, it's going to hurt our economic life, this is offensive to my religion, it's offensive uh, to to just my lifestyle because it's going to hurt the economy, and it's also kind of a a civic pride involved here, we'll see. Look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, civic pride, not just Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions and travel, But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. They needed to get hurt, right? So they're, they're preventing him. Verse 31, And even some of the Asiarchs, who were pr- friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd... Prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesian. Basically, just shouting down, right? To where he could even talk. Mm-hmm. So this. The, the city is thrown into confusion. They go into this theater that will seat like 20 to 25,000 people. So we don't know how many were there, but I mean, it's obviously large swaths of people are funneling in here and they don't even know why they're there anymore. All they know is somehow that this is kind of like a pep rally for Artemis at this point, and they're just shouting. Their wor- this is the way riots happen a lot of times, right? People don't know why they're there. They're just kind of there. They're swept up into the emotion. These people are swept up into the emotion. All they know is they're there to defend their god. And verses 35 through 41 goes on to explain to us how the town clerk had to kind of stand up and restore order and threaten them with the fact of, hey, you could be charged with rioting here. Um, You need to to back it up a little bit here and slow down. Now, what can we learn from all this? What can we learn from the Ephesian mission of Paul and about taking the gospel and advancing the gospel in our own community and even about us and what we need is we want to see the gospel triumphing in our own lives. In every city and place where the gospel is advancing, there are repentant and resistant. And even in our own lives, we have the opportunity, as we're confronted with gospel truth, to repent and continue in repentance, or to resist. And those that gladly welcome the rule of Jesus in their hearts and lives see his rule, and then there are those that see his rule as a threat to things in their lives, their own interests, their own lives, and they seek to resist Christ's reign. There's both pictures in every city, and every community, and among every life. Those that come under the reign of Jesus, those that resist the reign of Jesus. So what can we learn from these two pictures about advancing the gospel in our lives and in our communities? Four things. Number one, first takeaway. Our communities, and we, you and me, all of us, we need gospel saturation. We need to saturate our lives, we need to saturate our communities with the gospel because gospel transformation begins with gospel saturation. Look at verse 10. When we see all these things happening, I mean, when, you, when you've got the gospel advancing to the point that people are afraid to make idols or are afraid they're going to lose their jobs, uh, when, when you've got people burning what turns out to be millions of dollars worth of books, in our terminology, because of their repenting and, turn, and, and turning to Christ, uh, you've got significant things happening in your city like that. We can't forget that the foundation that was laid back up in verse 10 is that all the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Is that the gospel, from the moment Paul came to town, he meets 12 guys, they had, they had heard about the Messiah, they had heard about Jesus, but apparently they had not heard about Jesus. They had heard about the Messiah coming, but not about Jesus. They had John's baptism, but had not been baptized in the name of Jesus. And so he tells them, well, the Messiah has come, he's Jesus. So they believe in their baptism And, they're baptized. and from the moment he gets to town, it's just gospel, gospel, gospel. Right? Goes into the synagogues, has to leave there, goes into this hall of Tyrannus, and he begins to preach there for a couple of years. All the area beyond Ephesus, the whole region is just saturated with the gospel. And as the region was saturated with the gospel, people's lives began to be transformed by the gospel. We see that fruit coming forth in verses 17 through 20 there, when they're repenting and burning books and doing all that they're doing. Romans 10 makes it clear, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. And then Paul even goes out throughout Romans 10 and makes it clear to us, people can't believe the gospel unless they hear the gospel, and people won't hear the gospel unless people preach or share the gospel. So, I mean, that's just the way it works, right? And so, you get right down to it, if we believe what really changes lives is people repenting and believing the gospel, then it makes sense to us that the only way to see transformation in our lives, in our families, in our cities, in our workplaces is through saturating those places with the gospel. Because faith is what, when people trust Christ and they believe on Christ, faith, they begin to be transformed as they have faith in Christ, and that comes from hearing about Christ. So we need to saturate our own lives and our own homes and our own communities with the gospel. When I was a kid... I think I mentioned before, my dad was real passionate about his yard. And so we had Bermuda grass everywhere. And in the winter, we would go through and we would sow um, um, ryegrass. That was, you know, winter grass, basically, well, ryegrass. And we did so that it would be green even in January, right? So we were like one of the only yards in North Alabama uh, in our little town that was bright green. Uh, I mean, like January you know, 5th. I mean, it was still green. And it was because we, he would go through and he would sow that ryegrass. Now, we did go through and get a few little rye seeds and kind of plant in strategic places. Um, no, we 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 took a big old bucket and manned just tons of that seed, and we just spread it everywhere. Right? We drove a lawnmower, dragging that cedar all over the yard, spreading it everywhere because we didn't want a, a few blades of grass. We wanted a yard full of grass. We wanted to overseed the whole thing with grass. We wanted not a little fruit. We wanted a lot of fruit. So we saturated the yard. And in the same way, what you see Paul doing is when he goes into the city, he wants to see it saturated with the gospel. He's not just saying, he's strategically thinking, how do we get the gospel, how do we permeate this place with the gospel? And if we want to impact our city and our communities, our neighborhoods, our streets, our families, our workplaces, our schools, our universities, we have to sow the gospel over and over and over and over and over, and over, and over again, saturated with the gospel. Because the greatest change in our culture and the greatest change in our city And the greatest change in our schools and in our homes and in our workplaces will not come by the hand of a politician or a particular policy that's put forth. It will come when the Holy Spirit works through men and women having gospel conversations with people they know. That's how the greatest change takes place, bottom line. And that's true in our families. You want to see your family living according to God's design? Continue to sow the gospel. Continue to talk about the gospel. Continue to plant the gospel. It's true in our own heart, saturating our heart with gospel truth. I've said it it once. I've said it many, many more times. The gospel is not something we just graduate out of to deeper things. It's the deepest thing in the scripture, and we just keep diving deeper. We need to swim in the gospel. It needs to become the atmosphere we live, move, and breathe in. Because it's our whole new way of living. We live and lie of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and who he is. So saturate your heart with the gospel. Gospel transformation in your life and in our community starts with gospel saturation. That's our first takeaway that we see in Ephesus. Number two, our communities and us, we, are living in a spiritual battlefield. The community you live in is a spiritual battlefield. Your neighborhood is a spiritual battlefield. Your school is a spiritual battlefield. Your workplace is a spiritual battlefield. Your family is a spiritual battlefield. Your home is a spiritual battlefield. We live, live, move, and breathe in a spiritual world. And wherever God is at work, you can better believe Satan is trying to work. He's evil. He's real. He hates you. He hates God. He wants to kill you. Those are real things. Paul would later write to the Ephesians, In Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now he wrote that to Ephesus. Sometime after all this we're reading in Acts 19. I imagine they got that letter and they were like, no Joe, remember Sceva's boys? Right? Remember the guys that got run out of town naked? Because they tried to go rebuke somebody in the, under the name that Paul preached. And they weren't even they weren't even submitted to the Lord Jesus and they, they go playing in demonic things and we get it. Demons are real. The devil's real. They, they understood it in Ephesus. They had seen demonic activity Much more prevalent than maybe we've seen or, or aware of. But we need to understand that we live in a spiritual world and there's a spiritual war that is taking place. We didn't we are advancing the gospel, living the light of the gospel, living our Christian lives in a spiritual world, with spiritual warfare. And this passage in Acts 19, when we see that instant with the sons of Sceva, stands as a reminder to us that we worship Jesus, live for Jesus, and share Jesus on a spiritual battlefield, not a church playground. We are never commanded to go chasing after demons. We never even explicitly commanded to cast demons out. Right, we get to all, but you are commanded this. Right, in verse 12, Paul wrote the Ephesians. He said, "We do not wrestle against flesh and blood." Like, we get it, Paul. We understand. We remember. It. Right before that, in verses 10 and 11, Paul said, "Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil." Then, in verse 13, he said, "Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." Paul says, what you need to do is you need to be clothed in the armor of God. You need to clothe in the armor in the armor of God, right? The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, shodding our feet with the redness of the gospel, sword of the Spirit, praying in all times in the Spirit. The, 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 the armor of God that you'll actually see is if you go back and look, it's, most of it is in Isaiah. It's the very armor of the Messiah. It's living out our identity in Christ. Christ has given you everything you need to live in spiritual victory. There's not some secret potion or incantation out there. There's not some book you need to go read to figure out how to live a victorious Christian life. You've got all you need if you're in Christ. He's put a spirit within you. He's given you the very armor of God. And Paul reminds the Ephesians that sometime later after all this. but We tend to live life like we're not in a spiritual battle zone. Imagine imagine one of our soldiers one of our American soldiers going over into a war zone, going into the battlefield, and showing up in flip-flops and swimsuit, tank top. They'd think he was nuts. A few sandwiches short of a picnic, right? That's not, you're, not, you're not ready for war. This is a war zone. This is a battle zone, right? That, that's not how you, you dress for war. And in the same way, there's, there's a lot of Christians that kind of walk through life prayerless not saturating their life with the Word of God, not delving into Christian community, and kind of living on an island. Just easy targets. We say, not walking in the armor of God. You are in a spiritual battlefield. And if we really are awake to that, if you really believe and understand that when Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, And that you have a real enemy that doesn't just want to give you a bad day, but wants to kill you and makes it so that nobody on earth even remembers who you are. Which is really what that word destroy means. Literally just wipes you out and kills your legacy. If you really believe that, man. Then you start looking at your marriage and you start looking at parenting and you start looking at the problems you have at work or the conflicts that arise in your church or or whatever. You start realizing, hey, there's something else at work here. I might should pray. (laughs) I might should read the Bible. I might need the church. I might need to walk in community. Maybe I shouldn't be living on an island. We need to wake up and realize we're in a spiritual war. And we don't need to play around with spiritual things and play games with God. And that story is a stark reminder for us of that. We are advancing the mission and living our Christian lives in a spiritual war zone, and it's littered, littered with casualties. We take the war seriously. Number three. Our communities, and you and me, we, need a gospel community that welcomes, values, encourages, and practices repentance. I'm going to say that one again. We need a gospel community that welcomes, values, encourages, and practices repentance. That's what you see in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 19. This incredible picture of spiritual awakening says... In the midst of all this going on, they begin to extol or magnify the name of Jesus, right? Now listen, you can't magnify the name of Jesus and not deal with sin in your life. It's impossible. It's impossible. For Jesus to be magnified in your life, it means that you begin to see him more clearly and seeing him for who he is. And you begin to treat him more like... He should be treated and, and, and more and more to honor His Lordship in your life. and That begins to have impact in your choices and in your thought life and in your decisions and in your disciplines and all these other areas in your life. Because you want to magnify Him with your life. I love this illustration I heard John Popper use years ago. He compared how we magnify the Lord to microscopes and telescopes. Sometimes we think about, oh, I'm supposed to magnify God with my life and we think about it like a microscope. Now, a microscope takes like a cell... It's tiny and makes it look bigger than it is. (laughs) The telescope takes something that's massive, that you can't even fully comprehend, that's way bigger than you, and helps you see it better. It doesn't make you bigger than it is. It, It makes it seem closer to you so you can see it and understand it better than you could before. And that's what we mean when we talk about magnifying the Lord. We begin to see Jesus more clearly. The problem's not with Jesus problems with us, we begin to see who he is, all he's done, more clearly, and when we begin to magnify him in our life, people around us better understand who he is, better understand what he's done, because we're operating as salt and what? Light, which helps people see. That's what it means to magnify Christ. and You can't do that and not have to deal with the junk in your life and in my life. And in any place, among any people, where the name of Jesus is being magnified, repentance will be evident. It, it, it just, it's just evident. You show me a people that in their hearts are magnifying Jesus, I'll show you a people that will deal with their sin issues. And we should be a Christ magnifying outpost in a Christ denying church. Not, excuse me, not church. Community. We should be a Christ magnifying outpost in a Christ denying city community most in our city don't believe in Christ. Most in our world don't believe in Christ. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, right? Narrow is the path that leads to life. So we're supposed to be this little outpost of renegades, of rebels, who believe in the one true king who is the Lord Jesus. And with our hearts and our lives, we magnify him. And to properly do that, we have to do what they did is they extolled Jesus they dealt with their sin. It says, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now, commentators Students of this passage differ over whether this was people who were for the first time turning to Christ in repentance. Right? They had just believed and now they're dealing with their sin, or those that maybe had turned to Christ sometime before, and now, sometime later, they're both, they're, they're dealing with this particular sin in their life. Maybe it was some of both. The point is simply this believing involved repenting. Walking in faith means walking in repentance. It says they confess and divulge their practices. It's been said that among those who practiced magic arts in those days, that they believed that if their practices were revealed, like their little secret incantations and all that, their little spells, that if those things were revealed, that they lost their power. So when it says they were confessing and divulging, and what they were doing in their mind was reading it of all power. They, they, they wanted nothing to do with it. Anymore. They're turning away from that to the point they want it rendered powerless in their life. Now where does this happen? Where's all this happening? And this book burning and all this. Where is this happening? It's, it says they came confess. Where? Church. Where else? To, to, to Paul and, and to, the, to the elders in Ephesus and whoever was there. They, they were coming. Where else would they come? Right? They were coming together in the church community doing this. Brought their books and burned them in the sight of all. It says. Inside of who? This is a picture of transparency and authenticity. In the community of faith. Genuine repentance is best fostering and encouraged in a community. Mm-hmm. You can be real. Had to be hard for some of those folks to let it be known that they'd been involved in that. Even if they, even if they weren't Christians, it had to be hard. It had to be difficult. It had to be maybe embarrassing for some of them. Maybe there was some old guy that had held on to that a little too long, right? Maybe there's there's somebody that had been baptized months ago, and here he is bringing some his I don't know Harry Potter books whatever <laughs> they were, right? Kidding, but. I don't know. That'd be hard. For people to know all your junk, be that open about it. If we welcome and value repentance, we must welcome and value authenticity. Each individual is called to repent of sin, but a community is the context that repentance is supposed to be left and down in. We're not called to live a repentant life on an island. We're called to flesh that out in a community. That's why Paul wrote churches about dealing with their sin and about dealing with sin in their midst and about dealing with sin with brothers and sisters and and how to. Because repentance is a way of the Christian life, and it's to be lived out in community, together. The flower of repentance grows best in the soil of authentic community. It just does. There's a a culture of authenticity and transparency that should be in the church that helps give birth and helps give blossom to repentance. A place you can confess your sin and be honest about your struggles. A place you can seek help. Listen, if you're the type of person that when someone gets real and confesses their sin and is trying to deal with it and repent of it, that all of a sudden you put them on a list and you put them over here in this category and you become cold to them. Can't believe they did that. Can't believe they struggle with that. Can't, can you believe that? And you kind of put them over here and your other church friends over here. You don't want to do church. You want to do high school. And I graduated high school. I don't want to do high school again. Probably need to. That's not church. A church is a people who are walking in repentance together. And repentance causes a value shift, a value shift in our lives. We begin to esteem Christ more supremely as we magnify him and seek to magnify him in our lives and are willing to, to release other things in pursuit of him. Now the text says that they burned books that came to 50,000 pieces of uh, pieces of silver in value. That, in our day, that's roughly $6 million taking inflation. Wow. They could have built a building with that, right? They could have a lot of poor people with that. They, they could have sold it, right? You don't sell sin. You don't. If it's something that, that you don't need in your life, it's not something you need to insert in someone else's life, right? So what they do they do? They, they're getting rid of it. They want, they want to do away with it. They don't want to have anything to do with it whatsoever. Six million dollars worth. Listen, repentance can be costly. It can be costly. It can cost you friendships and relationships. Popularity. It can can mean persecution in your life. But when Christ is magnified and extolled in your heart, nothing compares with the worth of knowing Him. And You're willing to release other things to cling to Him. And every church, every church should welcome, value, encourage, and practice ongoing, thorough repentance no matter the cost in the context of gospel community. Every church. You know what kind of churches see people flee from immorality and addiction, criminal behavior, perversion, racism, go down the list of whatever you think is being bad? The kind of churches that foster the kind of community that values and governs confession. When John would write the church in Ephesus later in Revelation 2, Jesus would confront them for <laughs> falling from the love that they had at first. The loveless church, we call it. He he rebukes them over not having the love they once had. Not having the the passionate, maybe love for Christ in their life they once had. They were not pursuing Christ like they they had in the past. And this is what he says to them in Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So I want you to think back. And he says, repent and do the works you did at first. I don't know a lot about what they did at first. But he says, repent and do the works you did at first. When we go back to the early days of the church of Ephesus, what do we see? We see that in the beginning, this was a place that loved and valued and welcomed repentance, that walked in repentance together. They're a community that valued it. And listen, a church that no longer values that, that no longer walks in that, that no longer esteems that and walks in repentance together may be a lot of things, but it's not a church. So I, what did Jesus tell them? He said, you repent of what? I'm going to take and remove your lamps. You know what Jesus is saying when he says that to the churches in Revelation, which is, remove your lampstand? When Jesus removes your lampstand, that's Jesus saying, you're not a church anymore. You might be a 501c3, a lot of things might be going on there, but that's not a church. That's not a church. I'm going to, I'll remove, if I need to, I'll remove my people from that place and let those who are lost play in church remains. He takes it seriously. We need to be a church that values, that welcomes values. It encourages, calls people to repentance, but practices their are sinful. Number four. Our communities, and you and me, we resist the gospel. We resist gospel truth when we cling to idols. We, the reason people resist moving deeper into the gospel, the reason people resist coming to faith in the gospel is usually rooted to idols in their life. That they would rather cling to that than Jesus, because Faith is clinging to and resting in Christ. And to do that, you have to let go of some stuff. And Demetrius didn't want to do that. That's our second picture we saw. Why was he so opposed? Why was Demetrius the silverman so opposed to the preaching of Paul in the church in Ephesus? Because it was affecting his pocket. He saw this as an enemy to his personal interests. Listen, everybody's a worshiper. You're made to worship. You're going to worship. You don't get to choose today whether you worship or not. You will worship. I will worship. It's in our spiritual DNA. It's the way we're made. We're made in the image of God. We're made for something greater than ourselves. And we crave to magnify something in our lives. And it might be yourself. It might be something else. (laughs) Or it can be God. And it's only going to be God, according to Scripture, if we come to God through faith in Christ. The Only way we can truly worship. But even Christians can struggle with idols, giving a place to things in their lives that they shouldn't have. And when we're confronted with gospel truth, we can repent or we can resist and try to protect our own. But the gospel is always demanding change. So I don't like changing. The gospel is, I mean, it always demands change. You say, well, I, I believed that when I was 8. Well, now, I don't care if you're 8 or if you're 80 or 50 or somewhere in between. We're supposed to always be changing. Always be changing. Always growing. Always maturing. Becoming more like Christ. Either, either we've arrived, right, and you're better off than even the Apostle Paul was, or you're deceived. <laughs> what do two. do? We're supposed to always be changing and becoming more like Christ. And to do that, we have to constantly be letting go of idols, clinging to Christ. Notice in the text three things about people in their idols. First of all, people are passionate about their eyes. It says there was no little disturbance concerning the way in the audience. In other words, there was a lot of disturbance concerning the way. Concerning the church, concerning the gospel they were preaching. Demetrius is stirring everyone up, rallying people together, stoking the fire of anger. Verse 28 says they were enraged, the crowd was, and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, people don't tend to be neutral about idols. Because idolatry is about worship. Worship can be emotional. People get very worked up about their idols. You want to analyze the idols of our culture, of our city? What are we passionate about? Want to know what your idols are? What are you passionate about? One of the things you will tend to make idols in your life, what are you most passionate about? What makes you angry? Great idol. What makes you angry? Is it when someone or something makes you uncomfortable? When you don't have the comfort in your life that you see other people's have, the other comfort and pleasures they have in their life, does that make you angry? Maybe you have a comfort on Is it when somebody disapproves of you and you don't get the approval that you want so bad? Does that make you angry? Maybe you have an approval on Is it when you lose control or you're not in power anymore or decisions that are made and all of a sudden you feel like you've been slotted and you just get angry and you just kind of stew over that? Maybe you've got power. Control. What makes you angry. They were angry angry because there are idols being displaced. When people are passionate about idols. People are protecting protective of idols. Demetrius' whole actions here are all about defending artists. He says, Paul says God made with hands aren't gods. I heard somebody say that that was, that that was like maybe some people believe that that was maybe like Paul's slogan. It was like a slogan maybe. <laughs> That's why he was preaching and we can look back at chapter 17 and see Paul was clearly preaching that God's he, He's telling the truth here. God's made with the answer not gods. That is clearly sound like something Paul said. But he's on the defense. Because he knows Artemis is clearly a man made God. And he points out the danger of their trade being hurt, the temple being disregarded, and the idol no longer being given preeminence in their lives. He, he's, he's defending Artemis. Because people naturally defend their idols, protect their idols. Because when you're getting your identity and your security, peace from an idol. You will protect it because you value it. You will protect what's valuable to us. And people can be illogical about this. Man, these people are so worked up that they're literally gathered together in a huge riot and some of them don't even know why they're there. They're just shouting. What are they shouting? Great as Artemis, right? Nothing logical about it. Idolatry can make you illogical. You'll do things that are stupid. Silly. Not in your best interest. It'll hurt you and others. Things that if you wrote them down on paper later and went back and read a few years years later, they would sound absurd. Why? Because you're passionate and protective of your idol to the point many times that it can get illogical. You'll treat people worse than you ever thought you would have. Cross lines at work or in your family or wherever that you didn't think you would cross. Find yourself disconnected from the church in a way that you never would have dreamed of. Listen, we have two very clear pictures here. One group of people burned $6 million worth of books to get the feel to, like they're worshiping Jesus and to repent of that as they draw closer to Jesus. Another guy is putting up every barrier to protect his economy, to protect his pocketbook, and trying to push the gospel out of the city. Could not be two more different pictures. One of repentance, one of resistance. And there will always be people resistant to the gospel. And there will always be, even in a believer, we'll have to be careful, there will always be this temptation to go back to the old past. Walk out of the gospel. Well, over and over again, Paul says endure, 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 endure. Persevere, persevere, persevere. The old quote is, the faith that what? fizzles before the finish have a flaw in the universe. Saving faith is enduring. persevere. it's only by God's grace that anybody walks away from the idols and clings to Christ. It's only by God's grace that anybody extols Christ, magnifies Christ in their life. It's only by God's grace that anybody repents of sin. If it weren't for the grace of God, all six million dollars worth of those books would have remained. If it weren't for the grace of God, the Ephesians would have never been impacted by the gospel. If it weren't for the grace of God, it wasn't that there were some people that were better than Demetrius the Silversmith and others. Some had responded to the grace of God, and some were resistant to the gospel of the grace of God. As the gospel mission advances, we see those two futures. And we need to be a people as we live on mission, and as we seek to honor Christ in our life, first of all, pursue gospel saturation, because that's what leads to life transformation. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're not a Christian or you're you're kind of checking things out, you're not really sure where you stand between you and God, the message of the gospel is, the whole heartbeat of the Bible is that God has done something about that. God has done something about your sin. He has done something about the fact that you're separated from God. He's done something about the fact that you need to be reconciled to God. You say, I experienced some Things just aren't right in my life. I see brokenness in my life. I feel brokenness between me and God. I feel disconnected. The Bible says God has done something about that. He has sent His Son into the world to bear your sin on the cross, to die, to take the penalty, to take the punishment, to take the very wrath of God for your sin. Dying for your sin has been raised from the dead. The Bible calls you and me to repent and believe that gospel, to place our faith in Christ, to be saved, and then to saturate our lives. We need to be ready for spiritual battle. Taking up the armor of God, realizing as we seek to live on mission, we do so in a world where we have an enemy that hates us. We need to be a community, a church that welcomes and values and encourages and practices repentance. The re- repentant people should always be welcome here. Everybody's welcome here. Man, we we should we should want people to come and bring their junk to the table and we need to be helping people and loving people and helping people walk in repentance and we need to be a place that we feel like we can walk in repentance and authenticity and we need to not resist gospel truth to protect our idols. and we need to not be so deceived that we're that much better than Demetrius that sometimes we don't preserve our own self-interest and resist gospel truth we're constantly calling ourselves back to repentance here this morning how about you How about you? Is there there sin in your life that needs to be done? Is there gospel truth you need to uh, cling to? Maybe this morning, for the first time, you need to place your faith in Christ. Forsake your idols of comfort or of approval, of power, of whatever it may be, of money, and cling to Christ. Or maybe, as a believer this morning, you just need to take another step, another step of repentance from sin as you continue to press in.